the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if you do want to head downstairs, everybody can be seated, but if you wanted to head downstairs, you could do that, but you're welcome to stay here, the kids. So, but you're welcome to stay here. It's totally fine. Um, So, one of the aspects about social media that um, I find very humbling is the breadth of the issues that come up on social media. Um, I consider myself a fairly, uh, fairly informed citizen. I make it a point to be aware of major events, of, of major issues, of major ideas even that are happening, not just locally, uh, not just even in the United States, but around the world. I make it a point to try to, to be aware of these things. But within probably seconds of going on Twitter especially, within seconds, I realized there are things that are happening in this world that I had no idea or that I had completely forgotten about. It seems I have a boundless ability for outrage, but a memory that is too weak to carry more than maybe a few things at a time. And the things that I'm talking about that I'm not even aware of or that I have completely forgotten about are not minor things. These are, these are situations and issues that, that involve the lives and perhaps even the deaths of thousands, millions, even billions of people. A recent example is the fire consuming the Amazon forests in Brazil and South America. It was happening for weeks before I had any idea that it was even happening. Weeks. And even the first time I saw the news of it, it didn't really register how bad this was. There were, there are so many hugely important things that are happening all over the world all the time. And yet, I can barely keep track of a handful at best. Oddly, the passage from this week's uh, sermon for Jeremiah brings with it a wonderfully reassuring reminder for me and I think for many of us. And that is that the fate of the world is not in our hands. It's not in my hands. It doesn't, the fate of the world does not rely on me. That's good news. <laughs> it doesn't rely on me even knowing about any of the problems in the world, let alone rely on me to do anything about any of the major issues. This morning's scripture reminds us of the only truly important knowledge, and that is the God of our holy scriptures is the God of the whole world. And God's plan of salvation includes the whole world. And I say that's a bit of an odd reassurance to get from the book of Jeremiah, because for the first 45 chapters of this book, the first 45 chapters, 
The nation of Judah is essentially the sole focus of attention. This one tiny little community of people. God's messages given through Jeremiah have dealt almost exclusively with the remnant of David's kingdom that is gathered in what was known as Judah at the time. And then this major shift occurs in chapter 46. Chapters 46 through 51 are filled with these oracles, these messages of Jeremiah that are for other nations entirely, have nothing to do with Judah, or very little to do with Judah, if anything. We get page after page of these messages that God gives to Jeremiah to give other nations, none of which have ever been a part of God's covenant people, the Jewish people that were considered God's people. None of these other nations have ever been a part of that covenant people. All of these other nations have and follow other gods besides the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh, and our ancestors. I chose chapter 49 as just one example in the midst of these several chapters because within just that one chapter, God addresses several different nations. First up is the one that I read, Ammon. But in this one chapter, God also addresses, and and sometimes he addresses what is generally the nation uh, as it's known. And sometimes uh, God addresses the message to a like the capital city, the particular city. So God addresses just in chapter 49, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, and Elam. Those first four, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, and Hazor are are all nations or peoples, including uh, the the Bedouins. Uh, They're all nations or peoples that neighbor Judah. So you can maybe understand a little bit why, why they're there. But Elam isn't anywhere close to Judah. Further, most of the messages, most of the messages don't even relate to any interaction with Judah or Israel at all. And for for that matter, we don't know if any of these messages that are for these other nations ever got to them. And if they did happen to get to them, we have no idea if they cared at all. Again, these were not followers of Israel's God. So why would they care if Israel's God had a message for them? So if that's the case, what are all these messages for other nations doing in this scripture that is for the followers of Yahweh? Well, think about the situation for God's covenant people, our spiritual ancestors, the Jewish people, at this point in history. Let me give you a picture. Half of the nation, the part when David's kingdom split, half of the nation that was known as Israel at the time has already dispersed, been, been absorbed into Samaria a couple hundred years prior to this part of Jeremiah. So they're, they're sort of gone in a sense. Most of the other half of the nation, known as Judah, is now in exile in Babylon. 
And they have no clue whether they will ever return to their homeland. The dregs of society that were left in Judah, and that's what we hear they were, that was just the people that the Babylonians didn't even care about. Even those people, for the most part, have fled to Egypt. So at this point in their history, God's people are spread out throughout numerous other nations. Their homeland is occupied by a major world power, and they feel completely cut off from God and their faith and their their religion because they have no access to the temple in Jerusalem anymore or the priests. But here in this book, we have all these passages that prophesy about total destruction for all of these other nations. We had the part that I read about Ammon, but then for Edom, we hear concerning Edom, this is verses 7 through 11, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Is there no longer any wisdom in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Turn and flee, hide in deep caves, you who live in Dadon. For I will bring disaster on Esau at that time I will punish him. If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? If thieves came during the night, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? But I will strip Esau bare. I will uncover his hiding places so that he cannot conceal himself. It goes on like that. Verses 23 through 27 are about Damascus, Syria. Hamath and Arpad are dismayed, for they have heard bad news. They are disheartened, troubled like the restless sea. Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee, and panic has gripped her. Uh, gripped her. Goes on later, I will set fire to the walls of D- Damascus, and it will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. Verses 35 through 37. This is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. I will bring against Elam the four winds from the four corners of heaven. Anyway, so this, all these dramatic proclamations about what God will do to these other nations. There are only two ways to receive this, these words of God. They are either completely absurd and have no truth in them whatsoever, or God can fill these words with substance. That's pretty much it. Either this is completely absurd and nobody needs to waste any time with it, or it's going to happen. That's really the only way that you can look at these words. Now, if, if God can make these things come about with these other nations, it means that God actually has control over these other nations. Even those who don't believe in God, 
or follow God. It means that it doesn't matter how far spread out, what nations God's people have been dispersed to, God can gather them together again from anywhere. God can do whatever God wants to do. It means that it doesn't matter how powerful is the nation that is occupying their homeland. God can make it the homeland again. And since some of these messages to these other nations have no direct relationship to God's covenant people, it also would mean that God has plans and relationships with other nations that we know nothing about. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, professor, a retired professor from uh, Columbia Seminary in Georgia, these oracles, these messages to other nations, served to voice the claim that God's sovereign rule extended over all peoples. Yahweh is the character in the drama of world history who overrides national pretensions and chastens every self-serving idolatry. God is the character to whom the nations must finally make reference and with whom they must finally come to terms. As followers of Christ, we believe that this sovereignty of God this control of the world, will be fulfilled ultimately through Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God. This is what Paul says in that New Testament passage in Corinthians. If only for this life and for this moment we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits uh, the, since death came through Adam, all life, all will be made alive through Christ, but each in their own turn. It will take some time, Christ first and then the others. And then the end will come when Jesus the Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all other dominion, authority, and power. For Jesus the Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and will is the assumption, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, the good news here, one piece of the good news is that God's plan of salvation includes the whole world, includes all nations. The hard part is the waiting. The hard part is the waiting. This is God's plan. It's not ours. Oftentimes, we live in the midst of circumstances that make this proclamation that God is in control of all things absurd to say. Just like the people at the end of the book of Jeremiah, those of us living in this nation right now and in this world right now, Things don't look so much like God's hand is steering the ship. And yet, over time, 
God's words for Jeremiah's time proved true. The nations that were in power at the time didn't hold it forever. And God's people did return to their homeland. So what seemed absurd at the time that they, these words were spoken proved true, came true within two generations. Jesus himself faced this choice of whether or not to trust God when it looked as though God had lost control. Jesus, on the cross, has to decide. The sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He chooses to trust even in the midst of what looks like God has no control. And on the third day, Jesus rose to new life revealing God's sovereignty even over death. For all of us who care about the lives of the people on this planet and who care about the life of the planet itself, there is so much to grieve over, to fret about. There's more than enough in our city alone But now, in addition to what's just happening around us, we can see the stuff that's happening all over the world. We can actually see it live, happening in almost anywhere in the world. There is too much trouble for us to even know about it all. And far too much for any of us to be able to hold. Thank God it's not in our hands to hold. The world and all its people are in the hands of God. And as we find ourselves in those moments where the grief and the fretting overwhelm, may we, like Christ, be able to say, into your hands, God, I commend my spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing together hymn number 293, This is My Father's World.